Chapter 2 of The Autobiography of a Thief. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Autobiography of a Thief by Hutchins Hapgood. Chapter 2 My First Fall. For the next two years, until I was fifteen, I made a great deal of money at picking pockets, without getting into difficulties with the police. We operated at that time entirely upon women, and were consequently known technically as mall buzzers, or flies that buzz about women. In those days, and for several years later, mall buzzing, as well as picking pockets in general, was an easy and lucrative graft. Women's dresses seemed to be arranged for our especial benefit. The back pocket, with its purse and silk handkerchief, could be picked even by the rawest thief. It was in the days when every woman had to possess a fine silk handkerchief. Even the Bowery cruisers, street walkers, carried them, and to those women we boys used to sell the handkerchiefs we had stolen, receiving as much as a dollar or even two dollars in exchange. It was a time, too, before the great department stores and delivery wagon systems, and shoppers were compelled to carry more money with them than they do now and to take their purchases home themselves through the streets. Very often before they reached their destination, they had unconsciously delivered some of the goods to us. At that time, too, the wearing of valuable pins and stones, both by men and women, was more general than it is now. Furthermore, the graft was younger. There were not so many in the business, and the system of police protection was not so good. Altogether, those were halcyon days for us. The fact that we were very young helped us particularly in this business, for a boy can get next to a woman in a car or on the street more easily than a man can. He's not so apt to arouse her suspicions, and if he is a handsome, innocent-looking boy and clever, he can go far in this line of graft. He usually begins this business when he's about thirteen, and by the age of seventeen generally graduates into something higher. Living off women in any form does not appeal very long to the imagination of the genuine grafter. Yet I know thieves who continue to be mall buzzers all their lives, and who are low enough to make their living entirely off poor working girls. The self-respecting grafter detests this kind, and indeed, these buzzers never see prosperous days after their boyhood. The business grows more difficult as the thief grows older. He cannot approach his prey so readily, and grows shabbier with declining returns. And shabbiness makes it difficult for him to mix up in crowds where this kind of work is generally done. For several years, we youngsters made a great deal of money at this line. We made a touch almost every day, and I suppose our mob, composed of four or five lads who worked together, averaged three or four hundred dollars a week. We worked mainly on streetcars at the ferry, and the amount of technique required for robbing women was very slight. Two or three of us generally went together. One acted as the dip or pick, and the other two as stalls. The duty of the stalls was to distract the attention of the sucker, or victim, or otherwise to hide the operations of the dip. One stall would get directly in front of the woman to be robbed, the other directly behind her. If she were in such a position in the crowd as to render it hard for the dip or wire to make a touch, one of the stalls might bump against her and beg her pardon, while the dip made away with her leather or pocketbook. Shortly before I was fifteen years old, I was led into another kind of graft. One day, Tim, Zack, and I were boasting of our earnings to an older boy, twenty years of age, whose name was Pete. 
He grinned and said he knew something better than mall buzzing. Then he told us about shoving the queer, and got us next to a public truckman who supplied counterfeit bills. Our method was to carry only one bad bill among several good ones, so that if we were collared we could maintain our innocence. We worked this as a side graft for some time. Pete and I used to go to Mass on Sunday morning and put a bad five-dollar bill in the collector's box, taking out $4.90 in change in good money. We irreverently called this proceeding robbing the Dago in Rome. We used to pick leathers at the same time from the women in the congregation. In those days, I was very liberal in my religious views. I was not narrow or bigoted. I attended Grace Church in 10th Street regularly and was always well repaid. But after a while, this lucrative graft came to an end, for the collector began to get next. One day he said to me, Why don't you get your change outside? This is the fourth time you have given me a big bill. So we got leery, suspicious, and quit. With my big rosy cheeks and bright eyes and complexion, I suppose I looked in those days very holy and innocent, and used to work this graft for all it was worth. I remember how in church I used tracts or the Christian advocate as stalls. I would hand them to a lady as she entered the church, and while doing so, pick her pocket. Even at the early age of fifteen, I began to understand that it was necessary to save money. If a thief wants to keep out of the pen or stir, penitentiary, capital is necessary. The capital of a grafter is called spring money, for he may have to use it at any time in paying the lawyer who gets him off in case of an arrest, or in bribing the policeman or some other official. To spring is to escape from the clutches of the law. If a thief has not enough money to hire a mouthpiece, a criminal lawyer, he's in a bad way. He is greatly handicapped and cannot jump out, steal, with any boldness. But I always had great difficulty in saving fall money, the same as spring money, that is, money to be used in case of a fall or arrest. My temperament was at fault. When I had a few hundred dollars saved up, I began to be troubled, not from a guilty conscience, but because I could not stand prosperity. The money burned a hole in my pocket. I was fond of all sorts of amusements, of treating, and of clothes. Indeed, I was very much of a dude, and this for two reasons. In the first place, I was naturally vain, and liked to make a good appearance. A still more substantial reason was that a good personal appearance is part of the capital of a grafter, particularly of a pickpocket. The world thinks that a thief is a dirty, disreputable-looking object, next door to a tramp in appearance. But this idea is far from being true. Every grafter of any standing in the profession is very careful about his clothes. He's always neat, clean, and as fashionable as his income will permit. Otherwise, he would not be permitted to attend large political gatherings, to sit on the platform, for instance, and would be handicapped generally in his crooked dealings with mankind. No advice to young men is more common in respectable society than to dress well. If you look prosperous, the world will treat you with consideration. This applies with even greater force to the thief. Keep up a front is the universal law of success, applicable to all grades of society. The first thing a grafter is apt to say to a pal whom he has not seen for a long time is, You're looking good meaning that his friend is well-dressed. It is sure flattery, and if a grafter wants to make a borrow, he is practically certain of opening the negotiations with the stereotyped phrase, you're looking good. 
for the only time you can get anything off a grafter is when you can make him think you are prosperous. But the great reason why I never saved much fall money was not booze or theaters or clothes. Look for the woman is a phrase, I believe, in good society, and it certainly explains a great deal of a thief's misfortunes. Long before I did anything in Grafton but petty pilfering, I had begun to go with the little girls in the neighborhood. At that time they had no attraction for me, but I heard older boys say that it was a manly thing to lead girls astray, and I was ambitious to be not only a good thief, but a hard case generally. When I was nine or ten years old, I liked to boast of the conquests I had made among the little working girls of fourteen or fifteen. We used to meet in the hallways of tenement houses, or at their homes, but there was no sentiment in the relations between us, at least on my part. My only pleasure in it was the delight of telling about it to my young companions. When I was twelve years old, I met a girl for whom I had a somewhat different feeling. Nellie was a pretty blue-eyed little creature, or tidbit, as we used to say, who lived near my home on Cherry Street. I used to take her over on the ferry for a ride, or treat her to ice cream, and we were really chums, but when I began to make money I lost my interest in her, partly, too, because at that time I made the acquaintance of a married woman of about twenty-five years old. She discovered me one day in the hallway with Nellie, and threatened to tell the Holy Brother on us if I didn't fetch her a pint of beer. I took the beer to her room, and that began a relationship of perhaps a year. She used to stake me to a part of the money her husband, a working man, brought her every Saturday night. Although the girls meant very little to me until several years later, I nevertheless began when I was about fifteen to spend a great deal of money on them. It was the thing to do, and I did it with a good grace. I used to take all kinds of working girls to the balls in Walhalla Hall and Orchard Street, or in Pythagoras or Beethoven halls, where many pretty little German girls of respectable families used to dance on Saturday nights. It was my pride to buy them things, clothes, pins, and to take them on excursions, for was I not a rising gun with money in my pocket? Money, however, that went as easily as it had come. Perhaps if I had been able to save money at that time I might not have fallen, that is, been arrested, so early. My first fall came, however, when I was fifteen years old, and if I was not a confirmed thief already, I certainly was one by the time I left the tombs where I stayed ten days. It happened this way. Zack and I were grafting, buzzing malls, with a pal named Jack, who afterwards became a famous burglar. He had just escaped from the Catholic protectory and told us his troubles. Instead of being alarmed, however, I grew bolder, for if Jack could beat the protect in three months... I argued I could do it in 24 hours. We three ripped things open for some time, but one day we were grafting on 6th Avenue, just below 20th Street, when I fell for a leather. The sucker, a good-looking mall, was coming up the avenue. Her book, which looked fat, was sticking out of her skirt. I, who was the wire, gave Jack and Zack the tip, thief's cough, and they stalled, one in front, one behind. The girl did not blow, take alarm, and I got hold of the leather easily. It looked like a getaway, for no one on the sidewalk saw us, but as bad luck would have it, a negro coachman, standing in the street by the pavement, got next, and said to me, What are you doing there? I replied, Shut up, and I'll give you two dollars. But he caught hold of me and shouted for the police. I passed the leather to Jack, who vamoosed. Zack 
hit the Negro in the face, and I ran up 7th Avenue, but was caught by a flyman, policeman, and taken to the station house. On the way to the police station, I cried bitterly, for after all, I was only a boy. I realized for the first time that the way of the transgressor is hard. It was in the afternoon, and I spent the time until next morning at ten when I was to appear before the magistrate in a cell in the station house in the company of an old grafter. In the adjoining cells were drunkards, streetwalkers, and thieves who had been lined up for the night, and I spent the long hours in crying and in listening to their indecent songs and jokes. The old grafter called to one of the tenderloin girls that he had a kid with him who was arrested for mall buzzing. At this they all expressed their sympathy with me by saying that I would either be in prison for life or be hanged. They got me to sing a song, and I convinced them that I was tough. In the morning I was arraigned in the police court. As there was no stolen property on me, and as the sucker was not there to make a complaint, I was settled for assault only and sent to the tombs for ten days. My experience in the tombs may fairly be called, I think, the turning point of my life. It was there that I met the mob. I learned new tricks in the tombs, and more than that, I began definitely to look upon myself as a criminal. The tombs of twenty years ago was even less cheerful than it is at present. The boys' prison faced the women's prison, and between these two was the place where those sentenced to death were hanged. The boys knew when an execution was to take place, and we used to talk it over amongst ourselves. One man was hanged while I was there, and if anybody thinks that knowledge of such things helps to make boys seek the path of virtue, let him go forth into the world and learn something about human nature. On my arrival in the tombs, Mrs. Hill, the matron, had me searched for tobacco, knives, and matches, all of which were contraband. Then I was given a bath and sent into the corridor of the cells, where there were about twenty-five of the boys confined for various crimes, ranging from petty larceny to offenses of the gravest kind. On the second day, I met two young dips, and we exchanged our experiences in the world of graft. I received my first lesson in the art of banging a super, that is, stealing a watch by breaking the ring with the thumb and forefinger, and thus detaching it from the chain. They were two of the best of the six-ward pickpockets, and we made a date to meet on the outside. Indeed, it was not many weeks after my release before I could bang a super, or get a man's front, watch, and chain as easily as I could relieve a mall of her leather. As I look back upon the food these young boys received in the tombs, it seems to me of the worst. Breakfast consisted of a chunk of poor bread and a cup of coffee made of burnt bread crust. At dinner we had soup, they said at least there was meat in it, bread and water, and supper was the same as breakfast. But we had one consolation. When we went to divine service we generally returned happy, not because of what the good priest said, but because we were almost sure of getting tobacco from the women inmates. Certainly the Gary Society has its faults, but since its organization, young boys who have gone wrong but are not yet entirely hardened have a much better show to become good citizens than they used to have. That society did not exist in my day, but I know a good deal about it, and I am convinced that it does a world of good for at least when it takes children into its charge it does not surround them with an atmosphere of social crime. While in the tombs I experienced my first disillusionment as to the honor of thieves. I was an impulsive, imaginative boy, and that a pal could go back on me never seemed possible. 
Many of my subsequent misfortunes were due to the treachery of my companions. I have learned to distrust everybody, but as a boy of fifteen I was green, and so the treachery I shall relate left a sore spot in my soul. It happened this way. On a May day, about two months before I was arrested, two other boys and I had entered the basement of a house where the people were moving, had made away with some silverware, and sold it to a Christian woman in the neighborhood for one-twentieth of its value. When I had nearly served my ten-day sentence for assault, my two pals were arrested and squealed on me. I was confronted with them in the tombs. At first I was mighty glad to see them, but when I found they had squealed, I set my teeth and denied all knowledge of the touch. I protested my innocence so violently that the police thought the other boys were merely seeking a scapegoat. They got twenty days, and my term expired forty-eight hours afterwards. The silverware I stole that May morning is now an heirloom in the family of the Christian woman to whom I sold it so cheap. If I had always been as earnest a liar as I was on that occasion in the tombs, I might never have gone to stir, penitentiary. But I grew more indifferent and desperate as time went on, and, in a way, more honest, more sincerely a criminal. I hardly felt like denying it. I know some thieves who, although they have grafted for twenty-five years, have not yet done time. Some of them escaped because they knew how to throw the innocent con so well. Take Tim, for instance. Tim and I grafted together as boys. He was not a very skillful pickpocket, and he often was on the point of arrest. But he had a talent for innocence, and the indignation act he would put up would melt a heart of stone. He has, consequently, never been in stir, while I, a much better thief, have spent half my adult life there. That was partly because I felt, when I had once made a touch, that the property belonged to me. On one occasion I had robbed a bloke of his red super, gold watch, and made away with it all right when I carelessly dropped it on the sidewalk. A crowd had gathered about, and no man really in his right mind would have picked up that super. But I did it, and was nailed dead to rights by a cop. Sometime afterwards a pal asked me why the deuce I had been so foolish. Didn't the super belong to me, I replied indignantly. Hadn't I earned it? I was too honest a thief. That was one of my weaknesses. End of chapter 2